What's going on, y'all? It's J.D. Pakel. Welcome into the Hard Count, the people show every single thing that you know and that you love about the beautiful sport of college football. It happens here. Guess what? It happens every single day. And we are live, obviously, right now. But we're live again on Tuesday and the next Thursday. That's kind of how we get down around here. But we have a great show lined up for you. I don't want to waste too much time on the front end because people have been talking. And people talk. I mean, we talk right now. We have made a living off of talking, quite frankly. But people have been talking about Nick Saban. And I want to get into that because there's been some sort of conversation about, well, hey, the GOAT had his time and maybe the dynasty is sort of coming to a close. Listen, all dynasties come to an end, but we got to unpack that in its entirety. Nick Brake doing the real heavy lifting. So glad that you're here right now. If you haven't yet, join the party and subscribe. We'd love to have you. We're also on podcasts, Spotify and Apple. Wherever you get your podcast, you can listen back to the hard count. All right. But we, of course, love to have you on our program on YouTube live. We have a good time. Like I said, jam-packed show. Going to talk about Saban and his legacy. Going to talk a little bit about South Carolina and Florida. That's a big game with the Gamecocks going to Gainesville. A little bit of Billy versus Beamer. The Gamecocks are already eligible. A win for Florida would make them bowl eligible. That'll be a fun one to unpack as Florida starting to catch their stride a little bit. Going to give you our prediction and our preview in that one. Also going to talk about USC. Oregon has been talked about a whole lot. We've taken part of it on this program. I mean, we think Oregon's a phenomenal team. But it begs the question, okay, well, Oregon's, you know, number six in the college football playoff rankings. Are they actually the best chance for the Pac-12 to make the college football playoff? We'll discuss it. And we're going to round this thing out talking about Texas. A huge, huge recruiting weekend for the Longhorns is obviously they're hosting one of the top four teams in the country in TCU. And, you know, a lot of guys are going to be on the scene there. Some of them committed to Texas. Some of them uncommitted. Some of them committed to other schools. The plot thickens, so I'll tell you what I think about that game in terms of what it means for Texas on the recruiting trail. And then at the end of this program, the best thing that we do, if you're new to the party, that's great. We're glad to have you, but put in your question right now to the live chat, and Nick Brake, the keeper of the queue, will make sure that we get to it, have a little Q&A, a little interaction. You join the party, like I said, the very best thing that we do on this entire program. Before all of that, though, how about another prediction? Something we do here on Tuesdays. We also do it on Thursdays. But how about Georgia? Because Georgia is going to Starkville, Mississippi this coming Saturday. And Georgia is coming off a spot where they just beat the number one ranked team in the country. And now Georgia is that undisputed heavyweight champ until somebody else tries to take the belt from them. Georgia is a 16.5 point favorite. Games played at 7 Eastern. And you just wonder, where's the psyche of this program? Now, far be it for me to question Kirby Smart, but... There is a lot of guys on this defense, especially that are new to being starters. So how do they respond after having an enormous emotional win in Athens, taking the show on the road? Just curious to see, is this potentially a letdown spot for the Bulldogs? Well, they play another Bulldog team that really limped past an Auburn program that's in disarray. That's another video for another time. But Mississippi State is not pleased with their performance a week ago. So you would imagine there was a challenge issued internally from Mike Leach to the rest of that locker room. Hey, you got the big dog coming to town. Give them your best. And that's nothing new for Georgia. They understand that's just kind of what comes with being the reigning national champion and having that block G on your helmet. Like that's just kind of the territory that you're in. But I think it's an interesting game. 16 and a half points. 
It would be an upset, to say the least. It would be a shocking upset. Let's break it down just a little bit. We do hinge points for every single breakdown that we do. I really just have one for you in this game. The only hinge point that matters to me is what's Georgia's approach? Because like we already talked about, huge emotional victory, and now you're telling me I got to go on the road to Starkville, Mississippi. There is every opportunity for this program, if their mind is not right, for this game to feel like a chore. And that's how upsets start. You know, the big dog, the team that's supposed to win comes in and they don't have their full attention and they kind of mess around for a quarter and a half. And before you know it, you're in a fight in the fourth quarter. So Georgia has every single edge in this game. That's not novel analysis. You know it and I know it. You go through every single matchup, whether it's the line of scrimmage, whether it's the receiving core, whether it's the, the secondary, the linebacking group, like Georgia has every single edge. But you still have to step between the white lines and do it for four quarters. Just kind of the nature of the beast. Curious to see what kind of approach they bring. Because like we already talked about, if they're sluggish and mess around, well, the momentum swings toward Mississippi State at home. It's a dangerous thing. Every single upset starts with momentum. Georgia has a chance to snuff that out early, in my opinion. But for Mississippi State, you can capture a little bit of, bottle it up. I mean, we'll see. We'll just see what happens there. The way that Mississippi State, in my opinion, could make things interesting, if they were to somehow surmount that 16.5-point deficit that they're being dealt by Vegas, if they're able to you know, pull off the upset, I think it would start with, like I said, capturing momentum. But that, to me, starts on the offensive side of the ball. That first series, when the plays are scripted, for those of you that don't know, the offensive coordinator, the play caller, will script that first anywhere from 10 to 15 plays, the first drive, if they can execute at the best level they have all season long, because it would take that, and they can draw first blood, then maybe you start not feeling uneasy as a Georgia fan, but you just say, what's going on here? Hey, we're Georgia. Why is this going on? What's, why, why is this happening? Mississippi State starts to say, okay, maybe we have some juice here. Maybe we found something we can work off of. And that's the other thing from Mississippi State that I think this game would require you're not going to win all the matchups, which is probably putting it lightly, like of the 22 matchups you have, if you can just find one, if you can just find one and have it be extremely effective, well, then maybe there's a talking point there because they got some guys to do it. Ra Ra Thomas, Jameer Calvin, Caleb Ducking, they got dudes. Plus, Will Rogers is a baller. He's top 10 in touchdowns and yards, which is no surprise given Mike Leach's air raid system. But if you can just find one matchup and be able to just continue to sort of pry at that and capitalize on that, that's how this could potentially get interesting. That's how this upset, quote unquote, I don't know why I put quotes there. It would be a huge upset. That's how it would happen. That's how you keep this game close. Now, first of all, you got to find it, right? Like, that's the first part of this. You got to find a matchup. Because I'm looking on paper here, and you're, you're probably stretching a little bit. But beautiful thing of college football, anything can happen. Any Saturday, it's anyone's game. But that's what you would need, in my opinion, for Mississippi State to get this kind of thing done. Because you're not running the football. Like, Georgia's too good in that front seven. Ask Tennessee about it. Georgia is not going to allow you to run the football. So that matchup, in my opinion, would have to happen somewhere on the outside with the skill position. All right. Here's what it comes down to for me in terms of what the backbreaker likely is in this game. Regardless of whatever matchup Mississippi State finds or tries to find on the outside, 
you still have to deal with the Georgia offense. And the Georgia offense is catching their stride at the most inopportune time for you if you're a Mississippi State Bulldog fan. Because right now, they are one of the only teams in the country, they may be the only team in the country, averaging 300 yards passing through the air and then 200 yards on the ground. Translation, they're so multiple with how they can play this game with you. If you want to sell out and just give everything you have to the run game, well, I wouldn't recommend doing that because they're really good through the air. Stetson Bennett taking another step as the leader for this team going forward. Looks so comfortable offensively with, with what they ask of him, getting him the right play. Like, you're not going to win that way. All right. So then you say, we'll try and commit more to the playmakers on the outside. It's not going to work either because the run game is now starting to cook. Dejan Edwards, Kenny McIntosh. We saw Milton last week. We, you know, curious to see how healthy he is going forward. Like this program is just becoming more and more dangerous. And we've said as much on this channel. So at the end of the day, barring some absurd effort from Mississippi State to make this game interesting, we think the dogs, the Bulldogs, the Georgia Bulldogs, rather, roll at the end of the day, 43-14, to 14, getting a huge win in terms of the margin in Starkville. And the dogs keep on charging towards Atlanta, just kind of the way this thing goes. Honestly, Georgia, and that's the scary thing for everybody else across the country, Georgia right now is starting to play their best football of the season. Remember there was a time during the year where you said, are they gettable? Could maybe a team with a little bit more firepower get them? Because we saw them maybe look a little bit lackluster against Kent State. Heck, Missouri sort of pushed them to the wire. And I'm telling you, this Georgia team right now, you don't want to play them. Fully expect them to be in the college football playoff. Fully expect them, as of right now, to run the table and be in that SEC title game. I would love to see a Georgia-LSU matchup. That would be a whole lot of fun. Hope that happens, but regardless, we think they win that game. Think they win that game fairly handily. If you're watching right now, do us a favor, like the video, but also subscribe to the channel. We'd love to have you along for the ride. All right, roll party roll. This is a segment that I was very, very excited to do. Crafting it out. Hold on, I'm gonna take a sip of a uh, rat poison here really quick. Okay, good. That's very much in line with what we're gonna talk about. There has been a lot of talking a lot of talking about Nick Saban's Alabama team. Anytime a team doesn't reach expectations and Alabama's expectations are extremely high, both internally and externally, a lot of conversation gets geared towards the head coach. And Paul Feinbaum, who's one of the best in the game, in my opinion, said on ESPN that he believes that the, the dynasty window is closing for Nick Saban. To paraphrase, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the implication for me watching that video was Paul Feinbaum is insinuating that Nick Saban is maybe starting to lose his touch. He's 71. They've lost two of the last three. They don't look like a typical Alabama team out there. And so there's a little bit of this uneasiness and everyone's quick to press that button, right? Hey, is Nick Saban done? Is he finally going to be out of the throne as the gold standard in college football? There's a lot of other programs making a push right now. We just talked about it. Georgia's a, well, probably the best football team. Not probably. They are the best football team in the country right now. Ohio State, always going to be a factor. LSU's pushing right now to be something special in the next few years. But let's all come back down to earth just a little bit. Because how many times have we heard this about Nick Saban? Multiple. Actually, I'll illustrate it here in a second. Lane Kiffin probably said it the best in his press conference this past weekend, or excuse me, this past week, talking about Alabama getting ready for them. He says, 
you know, we, we talked about rat poison and how you say good things about Alabama and then they, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't take that rat poison. It impacts how they play. All the things being said right now, tell you what they are, they're goat fuel. And I think he's onto something. Outside of just 2022, can we debunk this whole thought that Nick Saban is somehow on the decline? I hope at the end of the segment that we're on the same page. First of all, the overall record, if you want to get into that, the numbers, 87% win percentage. Men lie, women lie. I promise your kids at home lie. That number don't lie, folks. The, guy, the guy's a winner. He knows how to win. He's stood the test of time at Alabama. The game of football has changed a lot since he's been the head coach there, and they've continued to win. Like I already mentioned, we've heard this whole song before. Hey, Nick Saban's kind of lost his touch. They made a playoff. What about that now for Alabama? They can't just run the table anymore and be in the national championship. They got to play a playoff game. What's going to happen? Let's talk about this. In 2010, Alabama had three losses. Wow, Nick Saban's done, right? Uh, wrong. In 2011, they won the national title. 2014, they lost in the college football playoff. Lost to the eventual champion Ohio State Buckeyes. Playoff changes things for Saban, right? We're all in agreement. Hey, they had the old system rigged. That's what it was. They just they, they, they were able to kind of rig the BCS in their favor, right? Wrong. Uh, in 2015, they won a national title in the playoff era. In 2019, they had two losses, and that's when we were all sounding the alarm, right? We were all starting to buy into that. Hey, the game's passed them by. Just the way it is, 2020, they won the national title. So if history is our teacher here, Nick Saban's not taking a step back to take a step back. If anything, this Alabama program is taking a step back to slingshot forward. I don't know if you can get any you know, money on betting Alabama for 2023 to win the national title. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But if you buy into that history of what that's told us from Alabama, Nick Saban in the past, might not be the worst place to put a few dollars. All right? So the whole, hey, he's done. We've heard this before. Alabama will always... As, or let's say this, for the foreseeable future, under Nick Saban, Alabama will have the best ingredients in college football when it comes to the recruiting trail. Because in some respect, that matters a lot. Like Georgia versus Tennessee a couple weeks ago, I guess it was only last week and now feels like a few weeks ago. What do we say? They've stacked five-star classes upon each other. And that's what showed itself in terms of depth, in terms of talent. Like that showed up on the field. Same thing for Alabama. Allow me to talk through these classes with you for a second. I believe we have a graphic for it. The on three consensus team recruiting rankings for Alabama since 2019 are as follows. In 2019, number one class. In 2020, number two class. In 2021, they're the number one class. In 2022, they're the number two class. In 2023, at the time of us being live, they currently have the number one class in the country. So, in terms of getting the best talent to Tuscaloosa, check, they're going to be in the top tier in that regard. And then you say, okay, well, that's great. A lot of programs can recruit talent. Like, talent's great, but what's talent for you if you don't develop it? Uh, they develop talent just fine in Tuscaloosa. Since he's been there, 39, not draft picks, 39 first-round picks, 106 total NFL picks. So they're getting the talent, they're processing that effectively and correctly, and getting the most out of it. Translation, Alabama, just from a personnel standpoint, regardless of the year-to-year -year fluctuation, they're going to consistently be in that top tier, which will allow you to, in my opinion, be competitive at a top-tier level. And that just can't be overstated. 
Like, you have to recruit with the best to be the best. And Nick Saban and company continue to recruit with the best, and they continue to be in that conversation of being the best, even with the two losses this year. Let's not panic. Here's probably the most important thing for me when it comes to Nick Saban and the whole conversation around him falling off. Nick Saban has stood the test of time as one of the best in the game because of his ability to adapt. A perfect example, let's talk about Lane Kiffin. In 2013, Alabama plays a Sugar Bowl game against Oklahoma. They get it handed to them. Everyone's talking about, hey, Alabama can't play the style that they want to play anymore. They can't just go get the biggest, baddest guys and run power every play. The game is changing. So what does Nick Saban do? He adapts. He pivots. He brings on an assistant coach by the name of Lane Kiffin. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you haven't. We mentioned him earlier in this segment. Plot twist there, or spoiler there. Uh, in 2014, they hire Lane Kiffin. In 2015, they change the entire offense. They win the national title. Nick Saban's not stuck in his ways. He's going to adapt with the game. And guess another way that the game is changing. The college football landscape is changing. Transfer portal. You don't think the transfer portal is going to help Alabama sure up some of those weaknesses, quote unquote, of their program right now? I promise you, they will go out in the offseason and pretty much take whoever and whatever they want from the portal that's going to help them. And has it been a home run on every single transfer they've gotten this year? Not necessarily, but you would look up and down that roster and say the majority of the transfers that they did get in have made a positive impact. Now, the efficacy of that impact is probably up for the debate with certain individuals, but that's a whole other conversation. But Jameer Gibbs, dog. Eli Ricks, I think he's going to help that secondary a lot in the back quarter of this season. I think you're going to see him be a, a tremendous matchup advantage for them. Like, there's a lot of things about this program going forward for Alabama into the future with Nick Saban that are going to be in good places because of the transfer portal. If you're in the portal and you want to go play in the NFL – which is likely one of the reasons why you jump in the portal to begin with is to help your professional stock. Alabama is probably one of the two to three places you're considering. If Alabama will have you, I don't know the, the odds on this, but I would, I would venture to say they're pretty high on you going to Alabama. So all that's to say, in terms of the way the game is changing, Nick Saban and Alabama are in really good position to be able to get some good things done and in really good position to stay in that top-tier form going forward. So what you can expect after this season, because everyone's going to say, okay, well, that's great. I understand the future is maybe looking solid for Alabama. Like, you know, I, you've convinced me a little bit of what's true about Alabama so far and what history teaches us. Okay, that's great. But what about right now, J.D.? What about what they got at the coordinator spot? Here's what I would say to that. I would expect there to be changes at the coordinator spot for Alabama going forward. Now, I'm not saying they're going to fire Pete Golding. I'm not saying they're going to fire Bill O'Brien. But by nature of what Alabama is, when you're a coordinator at a school like that, jobs become available. And I get the feeling that there will be at least one, if not two, new coordinators for Alabama going forward. I'm not saying that's going to hurt them. I'm not saying it's going to help them. I'm just saying if that's your frustration, I don't think you'll be frustrated too much longer this time next year. All right. So to round this whole thing out, if you're out on Nick Saban, if you think he's declining, if you think the dynasty window is closing, quote unquote, I have a hard time agreeing with you. I just think that's quite frankly untrue. If history's our teacher, when he takes a step back, his team takes several steps forward. 
He adjusts better than anybody in the game, and they get the best players in the game. Need I say more? So Nick Saban is not going anywhere. If you haven't yet subscribed to the channel, would love to have you all in the party. We're going to have our live chat at the end of this whole operation. So in just a few short minutes, you're going to bring on Nick Bray, keeper of the queue. Jump in there, get a live chat question in. Make sure we get to it as efficiently and effectively as possible. But if you get those in now, we'll be better equipped to answer those questions. All right, roll party. How about another prediction for you? Let's stay in the Southeastern Conference. Florida and South Carolina set to tee it up via four Eastern kick. Florida's favored by eight at home. And to me, a little bit of a Billy versus Beamer kind of duel. I'm excited for this one. Florida just got a big win against Texas A&M in College Station. I said it on this program. I believe that was a fork in the road moment for this team. A chance for a lot of those guys on that roster after Brenton Cox got dismissed to kind of buy out of the program, if you will. Like maybe you were bought in for a few weeks, but after that happens, you say, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what coach is doing. I'll stay on the team the rest of the year. When that portal opens up, I'm out and I'm going to play like it the rest of the year. All right. I, you know, I'm checked out. That wasn't the team that I saw in College Station. I see a team that's motivated, a team that's engaged and a team that's bought into the way that Billy Napier is doing things. That was the team that took the field in College Station. We'll see if that's the same team that takes the field in Gainesville against South Carolina this coming Saturday. Now for South Carolina, a little bit beat up, not so much in the starting lineups, if you will, but a lot of the guys that are depth players, not 100%. We'll see if that impacts them in this game, but they're locked and loaded for this one. Shane Beamer has built a really strong culture there. I think he's one of the best young head coaches in the game. I'm excited to see what kind of performance they deliver in this one because they're trying to prove that last year was not a fluke. They beat Florida last year 42-17. And the hope in this game for them is to say, yeah, that's who we are again this year. Yes, we're bowl eligible. But Shane Beamer said in his weekly press conference a lot of these guys that came back for another season, a lot of our seniors, they're here for much more than just playing in a bowl game. They want to do some exciting things in the postseason. All right, so take that as you will. Take that as whatever translation you want to take it. But South Carolina is very much still in hunting mode. Some hinge points for this game. The first one I'm looking at, will the Florida offense take a profit? Because that was one of the things that we saw them do so well last week against Texas A&M. They scored 41 points. And Anthony Richardson, did he light up the stat sheet throwing the football? I mean, no, three for 200 yards. But he was efficient. Two touchdowns, zero interceptions, about 60% completion percentage. Just took what the defense gave him. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't trying to play Superman ball. You could, you, excuse me, Superman ball. You could tell the, the weight of the world wasn't on his shoulders out there. He was just having fun playing within the system, playing within himself, trusting the process, trusting the, the system, rather. I mean, that's what we saw from AR in that offense. At the same time, we saw the run game really pick up, and you, you need the same from them this week. I mean, Montreal Johnson, Trevor Etienne, two guys that are dogs, both averaging, I believe, right around six yards a carry on the year, which is a freakish number for those of you that don't know. If they can have that same kind of run game production and throw off of it with AR, and then, oh, by the way, mix in that read option game, the defense is going to have an issue all day long. Like, that's just the fact of the matter. Now, the challenge for Billy Napier and company is calling that kind of game, calling that 10 yards here, 15 yards here. It takes some patience. It takes some patience to call a game like that. Because after a while, if the dam doesn't break, if you don't get that 60-yard Anthony Richardson touchdown on the read option like you got against A&M, 
then you start to become a little bit antsy. Maybe you get a little bit greedy. Maybe you dial it up more than you should, take some risks that you really don't need to take. And if that happens, maybe it hits, but maybe it doesn't, and maybe you get some turnovers. And this offense, I promise you, they don't want to spot South Carolina possessions. Just not a good way to live if you're Florida. So interested to see that. Interested to see what their tempo is if things don't click quite as quickly as they want to. Even so, maybe they get a couple of you know, on-schedule plays and they just start to, to reach a little bit. That can't be the situation for Florida. Play within yourself, take a profit. One of the best coaches I ever had said, you can't go broke getting paid. D. Mesa said that. Coach, if you're watching, we appreciate you. And that mantra is still 100% true, and you hope that Florida abides by that if you're a Gator fan this coming week. Now, on the flip side for South Carolina, Shane Beamer said something really interesting when talking about this week's game. You know, obviously, you got to run the ball. you got to stop the run. Like, that's what everybody has to do in college football to be successful. Pretty sure every head coach, even Mike Leach, I'm sure at some point, has mentioned stopping the run and running the football, equating to success. But South Carolina has rushing goals. He didn't say what those are exactly, but Shane Beamer basically said, we haven't lost when we've been able to achieve our rushing goals. Not just this season, but ever since I've been here. And if I'm reading between the lines here, I'm reading between the stat sheets, that South Carolina rushing threshold is right around 100 yards. So the hinge point for me in this game, can South Carolina cross their rushing threshold? And Florida, quite frankly, is ripe for the picking. Averaging 196 yards given up on the ground per a game, some of the worst in the country. Just kind of the fact of the matter. If you're able to run the football, Marshawn Lloyd a little bit dinged up. Sounds like he's doing better as the week goes on. I don't know exactly his status, but it sounds like he's you know progressing better and better. If they can run the football, no matter who it is, good things are going to happen for this offense. One, you stay on schedule against a defense that's already had issues on third down. Two, more explosive plays open up. Those safeties, they start to help because – that front seven's not getting it done. So you have to rally up and run support. When you rally up and run support, guess what there is behind you? A whole lot of green grass. And wide receivers love green grass, especially when you got a post called. Makes for six points, if you're understanding what I'm saying here. So if they can run the football effectively and reach their rushing threshold, you would expect them to be able to operate offensively just how they want to. And that's crucial for Spencer Rattler. We'll talk about him more in a second. But they need to take things off his plate. The offensive line has had struggles throughout the year. They played a lot better as of late, but he's a guy that needs to have this thing teed up correctly for him. So when they do run the football effectively, a guy that I want you to watch is Jaheim Bell. He is an absolute freak show. We had him circled as one of our breakout players for this season for South Carolina. He plays just about every position on the field. I mean, they've lined him up at Wildcat quarterback before in previous years. They've lined him up at running back, lined him up at wide receiver. He's listed as a tight end, but he is a freak show. If they can run the football effectively, watch what they do with him. Because I would expect him to get a lot of touches off of play action. I would expect him to get a lot of touches off of the jet sweeps. Like, there's going to be a lot in this game plan available for Jaheim Bell if they're able to run the football. Marcus Satterfield says, I want to get him the ball. He's made it very clear. South Carolina fans, you want him to get the ball. How much does he get the ball in this game? I think the run game will dictate what kind of touches and how many touches he is allowed to get. So here's the deal. Here's what this whole thing comes down to for me. You got two quarterbacks with a lot of talent. 
two quarterbacks that have gotten a lot of praise that is warranted at times and a lot of criticism that is also warranted at times. Spencer Rattler and AR hold this game in the palm of their hand. Which quarterback doesn't lose the game? Sort of a grim way to say it, but it's kind of just the fact of the matter. Both quarterbacks have had issues in terms of interceptions. Statistically, Rattler's eight touchdowns, nine interceptions. AR is nine touchdowns, seven interceptions. The big difference for me in terms of what these guys have around them is just that. I think AR and Florida are able to be more multiple in the run game. I think Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne and the, the read option game, like there's so much depth and then flexibility and versatility in terms of how they can attack South Carolina to where they may be able to give their defense a little bit of a rest when they're putting together a eight, nine, 10 play drive. So for that reason, in the swamp, I think Florida wins this game. I think it's a little bit high scoring, but I think Florida wins this game 38 to 31. So we like South Carolina to cover, but we like Florida to win that football game in the swamp. And if that happens in year one under Billy Napier, the Gators are bowling. I'm just saying that this is not what it's going to be under Billy Napier. Like if you have criticism for him, I would say keep that to yourself right now because it's not a finished product, but they're building something. They're building it slowly but surely in a game like this. If they can win it and become bowl eligible, that would be a really positive ROI in year one. All right. Excited to watch that game. Though. That'll be a whole lot of fun. All right, Nick, what do you say we get our frequent flyer miles ready? And let's go out to the West Coast. Let's talk about USC. Are they the best chance for the Pac-12 to make the college football playoff? Conventional wisdom would say, well, Oregon's ranked number six, right? So in theory, they're first in line, right? Mm, I don't know. Let's talk about it. USC's number eight right now in the college football playoff. Their current resume is an eight and one record. No ranked wins. You're saying, J.D., where is this going? Okay, they got a one-point loss to a ranked team on the road in Utah. I believe Utah was ranked number 20 at the time in the AP poll. They've since skyrocketed up in the college football playoff rankings. The strength of record for them right now, according to ESPN, is number 10. Strength of schedule is number 64. Take that as you want. The rest of the way, they got Colorado. They go to UCLA, which is like across the street, more or less. And they play Notre Dame. UCLA and Notre Dame right now are both ranked. So it sounds weird as a Trojan fan, but you're saying, UCLA, let's go, baby. Let's keep winning. Keep winning until we play you. Same thing for Notre Dame. Let's go, Irish. Here we go now. Win one for the Gipper. Win a couple for the Gipper until we play you, that is. If they can get to those games with the same record, obviously, they got to handle business against Colorado, but top 10 potentially in a matchup against UCLA, potentially, if you're going to go ahead and be generous with your ranking, you say maybe they get a top 15-ish. That's generous again, but you get a ranked matchup against Notre Dame. And then you set yourself up for a game in the Pac-12 title game where you would likely have another top 10 matchup against a Utah or against an Oregon. And if it's Utah, you avenge your loss. So the potential resume out there, if your USC is three ranked wins, two top 10 wins as a Pac-12 one-loss champ, and maybe you avenged your loss against Utah, or maybe you beat Oregon. Who's to say? But there's some meat on the bone for USC if things fall their way. I'm just saying. It's a curious case. So you say, okay, the question is, if, is USC the best chance for the Pac-12 to make the college football playoff? Let's look at the other horses in the race. If Oregon wins out, 
They would be a one-loss Pac-12 champ, right? But here's my concern for Oregon. If they get to Selection Sunday with one loss, well, guess who that one loss is to? Oregon fans, you're rolling your eyes at me, but just hang with me for a second. To the Georgia Bulldogs. It's by 46 points. Look across the, the way there on Selection Sunday. You got the Tennessee Vols just sort of minding their own business, looking left and right, saying, who'd you guys lose to? Georgia. Oh, us too. By how much? Uh, 14. Listen, I think it's probably a matter of opinion, but I'm just saying that number doesn't bode well if you're a Duck fan. Men lie, women lie, your two-year-old at home lies. Those numbers don't lie. Now, what will the committee do with that? I don't know. But my feeling is 46 points versus a 14-point loss. I know we're talking about losses here. It was the first game of the year for Oregon. They've run the table since then, but I just have a hard time believing they would be able to get in over Tennessee then. All right? Look at Utah. Uh, already two losses. Pretty quick conversation. Maybe some madness ensues, but I don't think a two-loss Pac-12 champ gets in, and I don't think I'm in the minority there. And I think a lot of the other people that agree with me are probably also in the college football playoff committee. So that's a short conversation. Then you look at UCLA. Now, UCLA is an intriguing study here. They would, in theory, if they were to win out, probably have four top 15 wins, with their only loss being to Oregon. Maybe they even get to the Pac-12 title game and they avenge that loss against Oregon. Well, then as a UCLA fan, you're starting to feel pretty excited. Maybe you have a chance on Selection Sunday, but let's backtrack a little bit. The Pac-12 fate, in my opinion, then would come down to USC and UCLA. That game that we're going to play in the Rose Bowl will be a whole lot of fun. Just quite frankly, I think USC's better. I think USC will beat UCLA on that day. We're going to preview it. We're going to predict it and break it down on this channel. We reserve our right to change our opinion based on the games that are going to happen before then. But I'm just saying, I just think USC is a better program than UCLA in terms of what they have available to them, in terms of the firepower. I could be wrong. Don't feel like I am right now, but that's just kind of the fact of the matter. But let's just say, you know, you have, I want to think of the right way to say this. If USC and UCLA in some alternate universe are stacked up next to Tennessee and there is the conversation on selection Sunday, who are we going to go with? All things being equal, who are we going with? I don't agree with it. I don't think this is the way that it should happen. But based on what we've seen from the committee, brands kind of play a factor. And no knock on UCLA. They have a storied history. They've been relevant on a national level many a time. But I think from a brand's perspective and recency bias, you might lean a little bit more towards USC if you're trying to pick between USC and UCLA, who you feel better about going head up with Tennessee. So the point of this whole segment isn't to say you're taking USC over Tennessee. The point of this segment is to say if you were to pick one of these horses from the Pac-12 and say, hey, one of us has to go out here and go head-to-head -head with Tennessee. You may still come up short. The committee may still lean Tennessee because their only loss is to now the number one ranked team in the country. But if you were to pick your best shot, your best fighter to send out there from the Pac-12, I think it's USC. For reasons I mentioned and for reasons that I think will play itself out in the schedule. But that game against UCLA for USC will be a whole lot of fun. We'll watch that one very closely. But again, I think USC for the Pac-12 is their best chance to make the college football playoff. Gosh, we're not going to have some, uh, some happy Oregon fans with us on that one, Nick. I don't think that one will be well-received by the faithful in Eugene, but so it goes. 
Let's wrap this thing up talking about the big recruiting weekend in Austin, Texas. Texas welcoming number four ranked TCU Horn Frogs. And the game itself will be high stakes, right? I mean, Texas is actually favored, seven-point favorite. Sarkeesian already came out and said he believes the atmosphere will be electric. Game day is going to be there for the second time this year. Like, in terms of the on-the-field stakes, you have all that you could want. However, the list of visitors from a recruiting standpoint is really intriguing. We're not going to go name by name here. Uh, there's a former line, or excuse me, there's a linebacker that is formally committed to a school that rhymes with Lexus A&M. Sounds like he's going to be in the building that day. A lot of guys that are already committed to Texas, a lot of guys that are uncommitted, a lot of guys that are committed to other schools will also be in the building. A lot of guys that are top players in their position. So the stakes on the recruiting trail are also pretty high for Texas to make a good impression. So here's how I see this for Texas. For them, this is an audition for all those visitors. Because think about it this way. When you're at you know, your own house and you, you hear the neighbor next door cranking the music, hear the sound of laughter and good conversation, you look over the fence and say, oh, there's a party going on over there. And you just start to think about, man, what's that party like? Maybe I want to go check it out. That's what I think this is. And the question you're asking as a recruit, when you go to games like this, whether you're an unofficial visitor or whatever kind of capacity you're visiting in, not just this game, you're asking the question, do I want to be a part of this? I did the same question for myself when I was on the recruiting trail trying to figure out where I wanted to go. Now, Texas wasn't recruiting me, but I'm just saying that's kind of the thought process. And for Texas, there's a couple of ways to answer this, but here's the scenario I want to throw out to Texas fans. The best outcome for you, if you're rooting in this game for Texas and for the recruiting trail to sort of heat up even more than it already has, the best outcome that would help Texas recruiting is a win, obviously, but not necessarily a blowout win. That might be nice. Probably wouldn't hurt the recruiting trail, but I think an, a win with adversity would really help Texas for a couple of reasons. First, the post-game celebration in the locker room would be like unbelievable. And that's not really a super insightful analysis, but I'm just saying if you're a recruit and you walk into the Texas locker room after that game and it is bumping after you just beat TCU after coming back from 10 down, like, hey, I'm just saying it's a good time. It's a cool place to be, cool atmosphere that sticks with you. On a more serious note, I think the true colors of your program become very, very visible. And what have we always said about Texas? What has everybody always questioned about Texas? Okay, they've got the, the recruiting power. They've got the facilities. They've got the brand. What's under the hood there? Like, wh what's under the hood when you step between the white lines and they get tested, they get pushed around? What's the culture like? And you can't hide culture when you're down 10 points. That's when it gets exposed. If you're able to have a come-from-behind win for Texas and answer that question in a big way for recruits, I'm just saying, I think at the very least, you show them who you are. And if a recruit is, for whatever reason, turned off by that, if they want to walk after you have a game like that, and maybe their, their thought is, well, they got down against TCU, and if I'm going to a school, we shouldn't be messing with, a, a, you know, if, if we have the brain of Texas, we shouldn't mess with TCU. Like, if that's their approach, I would say let those guys walk. If that's their response to how you play in that game. What I would imagine the response is from a recruit, if you're able to have a sort of revealing win in that kind of fashion, I would say I'm bought in. I would say, okay, I have a lot of my questions answered. I'm ready to roll. Let's get this thing rocking. Food for thought.
The last thing I'll say, a win in that kind of fashion would prove it's a new Texas. And maybe a blowout win would prove that as well. A win in general maybe helps prove that case as well. But if they can come back in the second half, and again, I'm not asking for like a, a 28 to 3 sort of comeback. I'm just saying have some grit about yourself if you're Texas and be able to show that. I'm just saying I think that's that, that would do a lot for kids. Because going back to that narrative, they're trying to fight it right now. A lot of these kids, they've heard about the Vince Young National Championship team and you know, they understand that Texas has been a story program before, but they didn't grow up in that kind of era of college football. The thought of Texas being a top-tier program for them is still relatively a new thought because they haven't really been new Texas yet in this generation for them. They've been the old Texas. They've been the underachieving Texas. So to show some grit, to have to go against adversity, and to have a big win against the top four team in the country at home in an incredible, excuse me, an incredible atmosphere in DKR – I think it would do a lot for them on the recruiting trail. So for Texas, it's a huge audition. A lot of folks that are already committed to your party or maybe uncommitted to a party in general, or maybe they're already at another party. They want to come check out your party. This is a huge audition. I think a win with some resistance, with some adversity, would do a lot to land the right kind of guys into your program. I'm excited to see it. Should be a whole lot of fun. But again, a big, big weekend for the Texas Longhorns on the recruiting trail with all the visitors that they have coming. So we will leave it at that. Folks, if you haven't yet subscribed to the channel, we'd love to have you along for the ride. And right now, we're going to welcome in the man, the myth, the legend, the heavy lifter. You know him. You love him. Nick, keeper of the queue break. Nick, how we doing, my man? Dude, I'm not going to lie. We're not doing good. Um, our live stream on YouTube is down. No. Uh, so if you're watching us, it's either after the fact or you may be listening to us on podcast. But JD, um, a bad, a good day for the haters because we have officially uh, gone black on on YouTube. That's, so that that is that is tough, man. Are we uh, are we still live? Uh, we are actually not live. Okay. Um, so guys, if, like I said, if you're if you're watching this, um, we appreciate you. Yeah. There we go. Well, hey, let's just do one question, then we'll get out of here. Yeah. Uh, so, look, we got some comments uh, that we had from the show itself. Um, someone's calling for me to be fired, JD, um, for the video cutting out. But uh, uh, that's not happening. That's you, not happening. <laughs> do you have any questions for me, JD? I mean, look, we're we're to a desperate point right now. So, it's what do you what do you goes. think, man? How it's, do we kill this time? It's the way it goes. You know what? I saw one question before we jumped on air, and it was, "Can TCU run the table?" Fair question. We'll answer that one. TCU has, in my opinion, the toughest slate the rest of the way. I believe they still have to play Baylor. Obviously, they have to play Texas this weekend. Got to play Iowa State. And Iowa State is a resilient group with Matt Campbell. So can TCU run the table? I believe it was our man Fergie Ferg that asked the question, get in the chat early there. Uh, it's very, very possible. Now, I picked them to lose this coming weekend against Texas. But is it possible? It's the Big 12, so it's absolutely possible. But if they do run the table, if they do win out the rest of the regular season, and they win the Big 12 title, well, I mean, undefeated Big 12 champs getting in. I don't know how else to say it. So we'll leave it at that. But TCU, yep. if they run the table, is it possible? Yes. And if they do, they're dancing. All right? So we'll leave it at that. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in. For all of you that were live, thank you for joining the party. We had a blast. Sorry for the technical difficulties. We're going to keep on getting better and keep on making sure that we can bring the absolute best product to y'all. 
For the haters, don't celebrate. It's still a bad day for y'all. It's always a bad day for the haters. If you missed this live or, you know, the, the stream messed up for you, we're also on podcast. So go ahead and check that out. That is linked to the description of this video. You like Apple, we're there. You like Spotify, we're also there. But regardless, we appreciate you bearing with us. We appreciate y'all tuning in, locking in with us. We are back on air, likely without difficulty, on this coming Tuesday to give you our predictions for the following week. But until then, we're going to keep the party rolling, and we will see y'all next time.